0: pray father what a joy to join with brothers and sisters to sing your praises and we praise you father because you're worthy to be praised you have done for us more than we have ever asked and you did for us before we even asked you provided all that we needed and we praise you lord for that And as we come to sit underneath the teaching of your word, Lord, would you attend us now? Help us to see in your word wonderful things. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would overflow in joy and gratitude at what we will see in this wonderful sentence from the Apostle Paul. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 1, we're going to be in verses 3. 14. Our title is The Saints' Blessings in Christ. Well, it was a few weeks ago that our family was able to travel to California for my graduation. Yeah, praise the Lord. <laughs> While we were there, we were able to see something. Uh, that I have always wanted to see. So on our last Saturday, before we returned, we set out to see uh, Sequoia National Park. And I had heard about these massive trees. And I'd always wanted to see them. And so even though it was a seven-hour round-trip drive with a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-month-old, and we knew that we would only have... Maybe four hours to see the whole park. We decided that it would be worth it. Just to go for a few hours. Just to see it. And so we got to the park. The drive up was beautiful. And then we saw these unbelievably enormous trees. And we were just totally amazed. And then we had to move on real quick because we only had a few hours. (laughs) So we rushed through the park, and we drug our kids along with us uh, so that we could see really something, some fragment of how majestic uh, this park really is. Although we wanted to linger, just drink in the majesty uh, that was there, we had to move along and praise God as we loaded up in the car and, and sped along. Well, the text before us this morning is something like the Sequoia National Forest. It's full of majesty and truths that are almost impossible to believe. In these 12 verses, Paul describes for us the saints' blessings in Christ. And every blessing is like a giant sequoia that you could just sit and look at for hours. But what we're going to do this morning is something like what I did to my sweet family a few weeks ago. We're going to look at all this majesty in something like an hour. It's going to be a 30,000 foot flyover of this incredible passage. And the benefit of doing this is that we're going to be able to see the structure of Paul's long sentence that otherwise it would be hard to see. So we're going to fly over, and my objective is to lay out for you the glory and the majesty of what God has promised to you as a believer. Paul lays all this out for us in one long, winding sentence that spans verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. This sentence has been called a kaleidoscope, of dazzling lights and shifting colors, a golden chain of many links, a magnificent gateway to Paul's epistle. But my favorite is from William Hendrickson, who said he likened this verse to a snowball tumbling down a hill and picking up speed and volume at the descent. And that's what I think... We're going to feel as we read this passage. Paul doesn't stop. He just keeps going on and on. And the wonder and majesty seems to grow as we get closer to verse 14. It's an amazing text. And I want us to fly over it this morning so that we can all wonder at its beauty and majesty. And for you, Christian, to praise God for His excessive, lavish grace to you in Christ. So would you stand with me? Let's read Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is... The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the book of Ephesians is one of several of Paul's letters that he wrote towards the end of his life. And in this brief letter, Paul unpacks several major doctrines in order to establish unity in this small church in modern-day Turkey. In fact, Paul states in chapter 1 and verse 10 that God's deliberate agenda for the entire universe is to unite everything underneath the headship of Christ. That's God's goal. And under that larger goal, God's desire for the church in Ephesus was that they would embrace God's great plan and unite around the wonderful truths of the gospel, that everyone would live in submission to Christ. And we should note Paul's strategy here. Remember, he's riding under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he wants to unite these people. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't downplay the truth so that the Ephesians would be united. He doesn't sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. No, in order to establish peace, Paul begins by unpacking some of the most complicated theological realities. Some of the deepest truths, concepts that men can hardly wrap our arms around. Election, predestination, redemption, adoption, God's providence. That's Paul's agenda to unite this church. What they really need to understand are these concepts, and then they'll be united. It's fascinating. Now, I want you, there's a lot we could say about that strategy, but... For now, I want you to notice something about our text this morning by way of introduction. There is a double-sidedness to this passage that we need to know from the outset. On the one side of the coin, Paul is underscoring for you as a believer, your blessings in Jesus Christ. That's one side. On the other side of the coin, he's demonstrating that God the Father is utterly worthy to be praised. So on the one side we see blessings and on the other side we see God's praiseworthiness. And for Paul, these two things go hand in hand. Paul did not have room for someone who just had a really high theology and loved to talk about these complex doctrines, but wasn't moved from them to praise the living God. So Paul, these two things always go hand in hand. The indicative of what God has done and the imperative on us to praise Him for what He has done for us. So look with me at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the term translated blessed here is used exclusively of God. It's a worship term. It's a doxological term. And it could rightly be translated praise. Praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is essentially doing here at the outset of this letter is calling the church in Ephesus to worship. He's calling them to a life of praise to God, for his lavish goodness to them. Now, in Paul's eyes, why is God so utterly praiseworthy? What would your answer be? Why is God to be praised, Paul? Well, he tells us in verse 3. He's to be praised because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing In the heavenly places. He is to be blessed. Because he has blessed us. That is he has conferred on Christians. A special favor. He has provided us with divine benefits. In abundance. So we are to praise God. Because of his bestowing upon us. Special favor. And divine blessing. What does this. Favor, what does this blessing look like? Well, let me give you, briefly, three aspects of this blessing from verse 3. Three things about this divine blessing. First, notice its source in verse 3. Where does Paul locate the ultimate source of the saints' blessings? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The source of the blessings of the believer is God the Father. And so, what we see in this text is God the Father's attitude and heart towards repentant, weak sinners like you and like me. He lavishes weak people like us He lavishes us with grace upon grace. That's his delight. And we'll see that. That's the source. The Father is the source of these blessings. But what about the scope? How far do our blessings as Christians, how far do they extend? Look at the second part of verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is a wonderful Statement And there's no way to do it justice. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Nothing is lacking. And notice that they are spiritual blessings. Not just spiritual as opposed to physical. That's not the idea. The idea actually is spiritual as attached to the third person of the Trinity the holy spirit every blessing that the holy spirit can give is ours in christ the psalmists often have the word selah now stop and think about that that's this is one of those selah moments where you just need to ponder every blessing that the Spirit of God can offer has been given to you as a believer. It's amazing. Every spiritual blessing. That's the scope. What about the means of this blessing? How does it come to us? Well, at the end of verse 3, we see that it comes to us through our faith union with Jesus Christ. Those benefits come to us only in Christ. You see that at the end of verse 3. So, In verse 3, Paul gives the source of the saints' blessings. That's God the Father. The scope of the believers' blessings. We have them all. (laughs) And the means of our blessing, it's in Christ. And Paul doesn't stop here. In fact, he goes on and on about this. All the way down through verse 14, he seems to be so overjoyed with the thought of the Father's overwhelming blessing to the saints that he doesn't even have time to catch his breath or slow down. You can almost feel his joy as you read this sentence. Now, what he does in verses 4 to 14 is unpack what he has just mentioned in verse 3. All right, so verse 4 to 14 is sort of an unpacking of verse 3. So verse 3, praise the Father for his blessings to the saints. And in verses 4 to 14, he gives us the fundamental features of what the Father's blessing to the saints looks like. And every blessing is truly worth a lifetime of contemplation. So Paul's not the only one who would drag his family to the sequoias. I think Paul would do it. I think he does it here, sort of. And because we're doing a flyover, though, we can see these larger features of Paul's sentence a bit more clearly than if we were just walking through the forest. All right, we're going to see the main pillars of the saints' blessings and the main categories, and we see it threefold. First, the saints' blessings were decreed by God the Father verses 4 to 6, and this is in your outline. Second, they were obtained by God the Son, verses 7 to 12, and they are guaranteed forever by God the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. Do you see the Trinitarian dynamic here? The Father, the loving, gracious Father, the friend of sinners, Father, planning, the Son executing and obtaining, and the Holy Spirit applying and sealing the work of redemption. All three persons, listen to this closely, all three persons of the Godhead determined to bless you. All three, active Christian, they're active to bless you all three actively engaged to bring you home to glory. Not just by the skin of your teeth, but full of joy. That's the objective. And so my objective here is to help you see, just take you through this forest and say, look there, look there, look there. Isn't that wonderful? We got to go. <laughs> and my hope is that you will see God's goodness to you as a believer, and that your heart will overflow with praise to him for his grace to you. That's my goal. So first, we see that the saints' blessings were decreed by God the Father. Look at verses 4 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, two words typically jump off the page when we read this passage chosen and predestined. That's at least in part because these concepts have been at the center of much controversy during the lifetime of the church. And I think I've heard more arguments about these two concepts than any other thing. And maybe that's just because I've had a theological education, and people debate this stuff all the time. And because of that, some people are tempted to shy away from these concepts altogether. We don't want confrontation. uh, We don't want to fight. So let's not talk about these things. Well, Paul is not going to let you do that. Paul will not let that happen. For him, these words ought to evoke praise to God and not dissension. And the word chosen here simply means to choose or to pick out. It's in the middle voice, which means that the subject of the verb is acting for his own benefit. So in this case, the subject is God, and he chooses for his own benefit. The stress is on what God has done for himself. God chose us for himself, by himself, and for his own benefit. Interest. That's communicated actually in the grammar of this text, but also over and over again as Paul makes it explicit, as he keeps saying, to the praise of his glory. Now, what interest, right? The Father chose us for himself. Now, what interest would the Father have in choosing people like you and me? Why would he do that? What's his agenda? Well, the refrain verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, is this. It's to the praise of His glorious grace. Who else can magnify the grace of the Father but for weak, incompetent sinners like us? The Father saw fit to choose the weakest in order to bring shame on the wise. And we're here not because we are strong and mighty. We're here because we are weak. And we confess that weakness, that we need a Savior. And we are here praising the Father because He has ordained that a Savior would come. And in God's plan, He chose, in verse 4 says, before the foundation of the world, He chose weak sinners. This is prior to time and prior to eternity. Before you or I even physically existed, we were chosen to be blessed in Christ. It's incredible. It's amazing. One of my favorite poems is by a guy named Josiah Condor. He lived in the 1700s. He said, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, Hadst thou not chosen me? Thou from sin that stained me hast cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee. It's amazing. Our election, your election, your having been chosen by the creator of the world to be blessed and receive grace upon grace, was all flowing. From the Father's eternal decree. He's to be praised. And then he goes further. Paul keeps going. We see the purpose in verse 4 of God's election. And here's the purpose. That you should be holy and blameless before Him. That's why the Father chose you. That you, saint, would be holy and blameless before Him. Now let me ask you. What is your great desire in life? Isn't that it? To be holy and blameless before him in Christ? Well, that's God's intention. That's his design in decreeing before time that you would be his. That you would be holy and blameless. And let me just tell you, that which God purposes is that which comes about. I remember when I was a freshman in college, we had a guest speaker come. His name was Richard Owen Roberts. Paul Washer called Richard Owen Roberts the last among the prophets. So this man was 80, um, but when he stepped in the pulpit, he just came to life. And I remember sitting there, I just became a Christian, I sat in the chapel, and I remember hearing him preach and thinking, I have never heard a man Speak this way, and I was so convicted. Uh, I was a new believer. I was discouraged about fighting with my sin. Uh, I was reading the biography of David Brainerd, which, if you're discouraged, that's probably not what you want to do. (laughs) Great book, great book. Uh, I mean, my still, it's indelibly imprinted on my mind. One of Brainerd's quotes is, "I see and know that I'm a very barren tree in God's garden." And he might justly say, cut it down. (laughs) And I remember I felt that more strongly at that moment than I had ever felt it. And and after uh, Brother Roberts had preached, I went down and I just went up to him and I said, I feel like David Brainerd in this way. I'm discouraged. I can't can't stop sinning. I can't walk in holiness. Uh, What am I doing wrong? Help me. And I will never forget. What he said to me that day. He said, Brother, don't you know that you have been elected unto holiness? His point was that as a believer, God had decreed that I would be holy and blameless before I even existed. And why should I be discouraged? I'm fighting, I'm pursuing holiness, but God's agenda will not fail. He's going to bring about my holiness, my blamelessness. He's going to do it. His decree can never fail. If he has decreed it, it will be so. And if you have believed the gospel, if you're here this morning and you are a saint, if you have not believed the gospel, these promises don't belong to you. But we would say they can. These, these are yours. The Lord holds out all of these blessings to you and says, come, come. Be blessed. Receive life, eternal life. But if you are here and you are a believer, it's not because you have some superior wisdom or gifting or personal piety. No, it's because before the foundation of the world, God chose you. He chose to set His love upon you. And the whole intention, the design is so that he will get more and more glory as he lavishes his grace upon more and more sinners. But Paul goes on, right? We've got to move on. Let's keep going. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. This is another concept, predestination, that takes us once again back into the eternal decree of God. And what Paul is saying is that as a believer, God determined before you were born or had done anything good or bad or noteworthy, God determined that he would adopt you as a beloved child. Out of the spontaneous overflow of his love. And notice what he says about this adoption. First, verse 5 it was through Christ. This adoption was through Jesus Christ. Not through you, but through Christ. There is so much hope for sinners there. Notice the rest of verse 5 he says, Your adoption was unto himself. Once again, we see that He adopted you for Himself. Now, who is, he, who is the self here? The Father. The Father did what He did in your life to save you for Himself. The Father kindly and willfully. Those are important words. Kindly and willfully adopts orphan sinners to himself and for himself. Adoption brings the sinner to God so that God may have fellowship with the sinner. And the sinner may have fellowship with God. It's incredible. <clears throat> then look at the end of verse 5. This adoption was according to the kind intention... Of his will, or according to his good pleasure. Do you get the picture that Paul is painting here? Here is God the Father, full of hesitation and reluctance as he looks at you. He moans and, in an obligatory manner, decides against his own joy to make you one of his children. Not at all. Not at all. The picture is of God who out of the overflow of His joy and kindness decreed that you would become His son or daughter for His own joy. His actions were motivated by His own good pleasure. One commentator said, what we have here is not a grim Lord watching over the execution of His predetermined plan. But a smiling father who is to be praised. A father who enjoys imparting his riches to many children. And then look at verse 6. Your predestined adoption. What is its design? It's designed to elicit praise to God for his grace. You see that in verse 6? You have been chosen and adopted by the Father, so that in view of His overflowing grace to you, that you would live a life of joyful praise to Him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Oh, friend, how He has blessed you. How He has blessed us. Don't forget His benefits. The way to make your soul happy in God is to contemplate His benefits to you. Are you feeling spiritually depressed? I would venture to guess that your life, or at least if you're depressed today, that your day so far has not been marked by counting your blessings. I would venture to say if you are discouraged you have possibly forgotten His benefits. You cannot murmur and be discouraged and at the same time praise God for His benefits. So is your life marked by joyful gratitude to God for your election and adoption? Do you praise Him that you are part of God's people? A people That He has chosen to bless over and above all others in the world. Is your life marked by that kind of gratitude and praise to Him? The grace of God, Christian, the grace of God to you is staggering. It's staggering. And you are a debtor to Him for His grace. And you will spend eternity praising Him for the grace you've experienced in this brief life you have. You'll praise Him forever for what He did for you today. But Paul doesn't stop here. He keeps on going. Really, he moves on to the second part of the saints' blessings in Christ. So we've seen the saints' blessings were decreed by God the Father, but they were also obtained by God the Son. That is to say, in the Father's eternal plan, He ordained. I'm going to start that sentence over. It's so important. In the Father's eternal plan, He ordained that your blessing would come to you through the work of His divine Son. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In Him we have redemption. It's a word that refers to the buying back of a slave where the slave who perhaps was a prisoner of war or a debtor of some sort was made free by the payment of a ransom. That was a redemption. So redemption is a release from a captive Condition. And what was the payment? What was the payment that secured the saint's release from the curse of debt and sin? What was the payment that secured your release from debt and sin and the dominion of Satan? What was that payment? Verse 7. All of this comes through His blood. Through His blood. The price that obtained your blessing was the shed blood of the perfect Son of God. The second person of the Trinity becomes man. He becomes what He was not. So that you could be set free. And His shed blood attained for us the freedom that we needed from the curse of sin. And then, according to the end of verse 7, the forgiveness of Of our trespasses. The death of Jesus was a sacrificial death that propitiated the wrath of God and paid the debt God's people owed. Through his death, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for sins that you had committed. And at the same time, while satisfying the wrath of God, he secured. For the Father, a people, to be his inheritance. The church is called in Acts 20, 28, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Through his blood, Christ obtained every blessing you now enjoy. Think of a blessing. Yep. Through his blood, he obtained that one. Every blessing. And you're forgiven in Christ. You're forgiven. That means you're fully acquitted. Fully pardoned. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? That means that your sins will never be held against you. Past present, and future. Never. The debt has been paid. This is why we love to sing about the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We love to sing about the blood of Christ. And I could multiply hymn selections about the blood of Christ. But we have to move on. Notice at the end of verse 7. The redemption that you have experienced, the forgiveness of your sins that you have experienced. Verse 7. This is all according to the riches of God's grace. That is according to the plentiful supply God's grace is abundant, so much so that your sin can never outweigh it. In fact, Paul says in verse 8, he says he has lavished us with this grace. Once again, we see that Paul is painting this picture of God the Father that is often so unlike our perception of Him. It's it's often, and there are some older hymns that convey it this way, that the Father is reluctant to bless sinners, but the Son has to intercede and and make the Father willing to love us. But that's not what what we see here. Scripture is the rule and the authority, not the old hymns. And what we see here is that the Father, out of the overflow of His abundance, His wealth, His riches of grace lavishes sinners with this. And even Christ's procurement of the saints' blessings is because the Father decreed that it would be so. The Father is not stingy or frugal with His grace. He doesn't just store grace up for His own enjoyment. He's not Scrooge. He's generous and lavishes sinners with His grace. Now remember what Paul is doing. Right, step back. Remember what Paul is doing. He is rehearsing the believer's blessings in Christ in order to, as Calvin said, to rouse our hearts to praise God the Father. And under this second heading... Paul has now highlighted the Father's lavish grace to us in forgiving us of our trespasses, in providing a redemption for us. But if you look down in verses 8 to 10, we see even more blessing that the Son procured for us. Verses 8 to 10 In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Are you tracking with that? It's, it's complicated. Uh, but what he's saying in a nutshell is that Christ procured by His death for us, He gained by His death for us insight into the unfolding plan of God. Christ one of the blessings that saints have is knowledge. Knowledge of what God is doing in the world. This is why we can sort of stand above the circumstances, the chaos that's around us. We know what God is doing. And what is God's great historical agenda? The answer is verse 10. The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. And I understand this verse to be the key of Ephesians. And what Paul means here when he says the summing up of all things in Christ, he means that God's great sovereign agenda in the world is to sum up or to unify everything underneath the headship of Christ. Now, if you're saying, where did he get that? I would love to talk to you about that. It's a complex passage, and I wrestled with it a lot, um, so I'd be glad to talk to you about it. But this is the point. The agenda of history, God's superintending of history, is to bring everyone and everything underneath the headship of Christ. And we are experiencing that now, aren't we? Why are you here this morning? What are we doing this morning? Why are we listening to this book taught well this is how Christ executes his headship over you and me as his church through his word. We have been brought underneath the headship of Christ. He is the head and he is outworking his headship in history. He's bringing everyone in heaven and on earth underneath his lordship. And you and I have been brought underneath the headship of Christ. He is our Lord, He's our head in history is moving in that direction where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the head. That's why we talk about headship in our families, headship in leadership in our churches. We're all coming underneath Christ's headship. Well, Paul keeps going. Verses 11 to 12 he says the believer has been given an inheritance. Let's read that passage. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Okay, do you see the snowball? He keeps repeating himself. And he's adding majesty and glory as we go down the hill. And he says, not only has Jesus given us redemption, forgiveness of sins, knowledge of what God is doing in the world, but he's also given you an inheritance. And let me give you that in a word. Your inheritance is everything. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that you are Christ's. Right? Everything is the saints. We belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God, and we could put it another way. Our inheritance is Christ, therefore our inheritance is everything. There's much more to say, but Paul keeps going. Okay, so here, let me, let me give us a, a synopsis of where we've been, and then we'll be to our last point. So we've seen, first, as a saint, your blessings were decreed by God the Father in eternity past. And second, we've seen the Father, out of his own delight, saw fit to obtain your blessing as a believer through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, verses 13 and 14, we see that the Father has guaranteed the saints' blessings by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The Father, Christian, the Father has guaranteed your blessings by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says that after a sinner hears the message of the gospel and believes, he is sealed with the promise or the Holy Spirit of promise. What's a seal? Well, in the New Testament era, a seal was a mark of ownership. It could refer to an official mark of identification placed on a letter or some official document. Or it could be used to mark, we would say, brand animals to demonstrate that this animal belonged to a certain master. To bear a seal meant that you belonged or a letter belonged to a master. Whatever was marked... Listen closely. Whatever was marked by the seal was under the authority of the person whose stamp was on the seal. In other words, the seal carried with it the protection and provision of the owner. So to be sealed with the Holy Spirit is to be marked by God the Father. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells the believer and secures and preserves him for the sake of the Father. And Paul goes further in verse 14. He says that the Holy Spirit is the pledge or guarantee of the believer's inheritance. The word here refers to the first installment in a payment plan. It's the down payment. We just, praise the Lord, it's tentative, but our offer on a house was accepted this week. Which is a miracle. The Lord does what the Lord does. Um, but we had to put down earnest money uh, to demonstrate that we were serious about this, and we weren't going to back out. Actually, I think the King James uses the word earnest here. Uh, the idea is of a down payment. It secures something. It's the first installment of a payment. And for the believer, the earnest money that was put down was the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit. He is the first installment of our blessing. He is the guarantee of all that God has promised to us. He is the pledge of our eternal inheritance. But notice, notice something else, and this, this is really amazing. Look at the end of verse 14 says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. All right, so what we just talked about. But notice the next phrase. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, this is a complex sentence. And so if you're reading a translation, that may not read that way. Uh, but it's difficult to understand because commentators aren't sure. Is Paul talking about the believer's inheritance or is he talking about the father's inheritance? and it's really that way all throughout Romans 1 and through i mean through Ephesians 1 and through the rest of Ephesians is Paul talking about the father's blessing or the believers' blessing and this is why i think the the idea of a double-sided coin is helpful because to me it's pretty clear here that Paul is talking about the father's inheritance the holy spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance on one side but he is also the guarantee that the Father will receive the saints as his own possession. That's his aim. He is the one who has said that one is mine. He is marked with my seal. He belongs to me, and nothing will keep me from getting him. This is Romans eight thirty two. Kind of in reverse, but Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, he didn't spare his son, he gave his son, he delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's not the exact same argument. Because here Paul is saying, if God gave you Jesus, he's going to give you every other blessing. But in Ephesians 1, the idea is more like this. If God gave his own son to purchase a people for himself, certainly he will not waste the earnest money. Certainly he will not waste the purchase price. He bought them with an incredible price and he will not let them get away. You belong to him. You are marked. You're his saint. And God has decreed that his joy and your joy would be eternally bound up together. God's agenda has always been to take a people for himself. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, Exodus 19, and that was the promise we saw to Israel. And in one sense, the church enjoys that promise today. 1 Peter two nine, we are His possession. We are a people, a chosen royal priesthood. We are a people for His own possession. Titus 2 says the same thing. And Saint, let me tell you, He has decreed your eternal blessing in eternity past. He has obtained your blessing through the blood of Christ. And He guarantees your blessing through the indwelling pledge of, Of the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian work. And the design. Is that God. Would get the praise. He deserves. Out of you. That's the purpose. And what he demands of you today. Is to praise him. To praise him for his glorious Grace to you. If you are His, if you're a saint, no matter the trial that you're enduring, you are unimaginably blessed. And we have only begun to wade into this ocean of blessing. And Paul calls us, not just to speed through like we just did, he does call us to linger. And friends, I know we, we, we sped through here. But if you are in trial, I'm telling you, your soul needs to stop at one of these sequoias and just ponder and worship God for what he's done for you. If you're not in trial, you need this too. We all need this. We of all people, Christians, should be those who sing in the midst of chaos because we are amazingly, almost unbelievably blessed. And the Father's lavish grace to us demands that we live joyful lives of praise to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your lavishness. Thank You for Your grace. We can not even begin to praise you appropriately for what you have done for us in Jesus. And so we give our our best effort and we praise you, Father. And we say, accept our worship. Help us to lay hold and to believe these truths. Lord, would you convince us, give us grace to comprehend what is truly incomprehensible. And we pray that you would do this for your own sake so that praise from our lips would be given to you and you would receive much glory from it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.